We're anticipating uh, the celebration of Easter and Christ's victory over sin, but the days and really the life of Christ that preceded his resurrection and victory were days that were characterized by hardship and suffering and trials, were they not? And while we can look back on our last week and should name and recognize the many blessings that we experienced by God's merciful hand, and they are abundant, which should cause us to be joyful. I suppose if I surveyed us this morning and asked each of you privately to describe what were the challenges, what were some of the hardships, what were some of the struggles that you encountered this week, and we collectively listed all of those, it would be pretty overwhelming, would it not? Maybe you're sitting there thinking, just my list is overwhelming. I can't imagine multiplying that uh, across this room. But our God is a God who is victorious, and he's assured us that same victory. And an understanding of Scripture for the believer and the saint who walks in the very footsteps of Christ of both suffering and victory, there's much for us to learn from those struggles and trials that we encounter. And I know there's been periods in my own life where it just seems you can't quite catch a breath, can't quite get your head above the water. It just seems like wave after wave comes, and you feel like you're losing ground or the idea of just treading water and gasping for air and gasping for hope. And it may be the case that many of you sitting here this morning, if you're honest, find yourself in such a situation where the circumstances of life just are are frankly overwhelming. And you're doing your best. You're trying to be faithful. And you ask some critical questions as you face suffering and hardships in life. And so this morning, what I want to do is attempt to answer some of those questions. And I've entitled this morning, Why Are We Called to Suffer? Why are Christians called to suffer? Or another title for the sermon might simply be, God's Good Work in Our Suffering. I want to set some hope in your heart. I want to help you see from Scripture and from the testimony of Others, meaning pastors, theologians, who have wrestled with and engaged the scriptures to answer this question, why must the believer suffer? Well, if you step back and just look at the reality of living in a fallen world, first of all, there's plenty of examples of what the effects of the fall are. Maybe your sufferings or trials might be characterized by simply the daily realities of the fall that you face every day. First of all, your own flesh and temptation, the struggle with sin. I won't ask for a showing of hands, but we all would raise our hand, would we not? That the battle to overcome temptations and had a victory in our hearts to walk in joy and gladness and obedience and holiness is a battle for us because we contend with the flesh that we're still bound to, even though we are new creatures in Christ. And we think about the effects of that in relationships around us, and and we see others whose sin affects us, or maybe our sin against them, and therefore we experience divisions and don't enjoy the kind of of sweet fellowship and harmony. It might be in your marriage. It might be in your home, parents to children. It might be with extended family members, certainly other believers, and even those you might encounter at work. And then we consider work itself, and we're reminded that as we go to work, whatever form it is, that 
the very curse of the fall. It's not that work is bad. We were created to work, man, particularly in providing for his family and ruling in a loving and, and godlike way over the creation. But work became difficult, didn't it? By the sweat of our brow. And that comes also not just in the form of, of going to work, but the very work in our home. Anybody here not have a long to-do list of repairing and fixing everything that seems to break faster than you can repair or afford to have fixed? And the list gets longer. Your house is not getting better, it's getting worse, isn't it? Uh, we think of what's happening, not even just on the work front, but our own bodies and our health. And there are many of us in this room who are suffering from chronic pain or difficulty uh, due to a major injury or certainly uh, the effect of that on someone close to us. We're all aging. That shouldn't be a surprise to anybody here. (laughs) The young folks here, uh, they'll soon learn, like the rest of us, that this body is, is wearing out and is a daily reminder, right, of the fall. Certainly in our society, as we look around and we see just the struggles that people have just to pay their bills with the rate of inflation going up dramatically. If you're like me and just trying to pay your gas bill, it's shocking when you open that envelope every month from just six months ago. And you look at other things that are fraying in our society and our world, and and we encounter those on a daily basis. And you just take all those as if that wasn't enough. And then you consider trying to live a life of faithfulness to God in the proclamation of the gospel to those who are enemies of the cross, those who are lost. And maybe their unresponsiveness or maybe even their outright hostility that could even lead to persecution. And the believer understands from Scripture that a call or an invitation to follow Christ is going to be met with suffering even to the extent of persecution in some cases, even the loss of life. Is this what God intended for us? Well, we know there's a future day. And our hope is in that day, isn't it? We sang about this morning, and our hope is anchored in the future rest that's promised to us in Christ and in his presence for all eternity. And so the the heightened sense of suffering and trial certainly increases for us a greater hope and expectation. That's one of the wonderful purposes of suffering, believe it or not, in that regard, our suffering is a grace because it heightens our longing and our expectation for what we were created to experience and and the goodness and, and, and glorification that awaits us. But that day hasn't come yet. And I assure you, if the sun rises tomorrow, Monday will be filled with enough opportunities to face trials and sufferings. So should we Live defeated in light of that? What does the scripture have for us to consider how we might persevere and to understand God's good work for us in the midst of suffering? And I hope that this morning, simply our time in the word will be a time of encouragement and aid to you um, as we consider certain principles and texts that I found to be an aid to me. Well, this week I was meditating on the reality of just challenges that we face. As we face the realities of the fall, matter of fact, you might consider it this way, and you're going to think I'm I'm a horrible pessimist. I'm not uh, at all. But in this regard, I'm a realist. Do you realize everything we do is pushing back against the effects of the fall? You're like, yeah, I don't need to be convinced of that. But I state it that way because 
Correcting our expectations goes a long way to help us to understand what God's purpose is for us. Everything we experience in the course of a day, to some regards, pushing back against the effects of the fall. And even those wonderful and good things that we do, like worshiping and praising the Lord, it's pushing against the lies of the enemy that want to rob God of the glory that he deserves and our belief in him that he is a good God. And so even the good things that we do, we're we're fighting and contending constantly with the effects of the fall. Just to understand that might help you. There's a reason life's hard. There's a reason it's a battle. And you might just go, ah, it's one of those aha moments. Because sometimes I think when we're younger and we grow up, we're very idealistic. And some of that's informed a lot by our marketing culture that wants to tell us what ideals are and what we should expect in life. And so we live hoping that someday we'll achieve those ideals. Well, our ideal awaits us. It awaits us as far as a future in the presence of Christ, but it's present to us also. That ideal is available to us in him, but it's not in our circumstances. We're never going to achieve what our soul longs for in our present circumstances apart from Christ, and we have him. So that new car is going to become an old car. That new house certainly could become an old house. This younger body certainly could become an older body. So just correcting our expectations may be helpful in that regard. But as I meditate on this, and I consider some questions that we should or may ask ourselves in the midst of trials. First of all, when the trial comes or the suffering comes, how might we be tempted to create idols or demands in our hearts that cause us to even become angry or bitter at God or others who cause our hardships? Sometimes we're just so beat up with life, we're looking for somebody to blame. Sometimes we blame God because he doesn't fix or correct our circumstances in the way that we want him to according to our timeline. And so I have to confess to you, I'm tempted sometimes to be angry or bitter to God or if I don't allow myself to admit that, I'll find somebody to be the cause of whatever I'm suffering and it'll be easy to place blame on them. And so in my heart, then an idol arises. I want to fix the circumstance. I want to do something to either persuade God or to persuade somebody else to change so that my circumstances might change. And then I begin to pursue that in a sinful way. Or when I think that I failed and I look at not meeting my own standards of expectation come anyway, it might come with regard to trying to be a good elder or pastor or uh, a boss or whatever it might be, and I, I fall short of that standard or not just my expectations or others. Maybe it's in my marriage. I'm not that loving husband that I should be to my wife or certainly to my kids. Or certain relationships I've been negligent to pursue or maybe even have allowed for tension or conflict to exist without resolving it. Maybe it's an aspect of my work that I just, I'm not gifted at or I'm not good at and I struggle with and don't quite achieve what I think those who work for me would expect of me. Or maybe it's just those quiet temptations in my own heart and mind to sin against the Lord. And so when that happens and I focus on my failures or shortcomings, what do I focus on? Does my focus become fixing me 
So I just create a longer to-do list or I set more goals or I just try to set my course in a way that will change that. It's not that sometimes doing those good things is not necessary. But if it's motivated by sin with the wrong expectation and the wrong aim, then I'm misguided and will certainly fall short of what God intends. Or it may not be fixing myself, it may be fixing others. Anybody have a long list of all the people you like to fix in your life? We do, whether it's written down on paper or not. It's somewhere in your mind and probably in your heart. And so what we begin to do is is become even very legalistic in our approach to life. We just make longer lists and things we try to achieve in ourselves or for others that we can't actually meet by way of expectation, nor can others, in a way that's going to satisfy us. And so this might be in the area of your health. You're just going to exercise harder. You're going to watch that diet even more to try to meet your expectations. It might be finances. It might be relationships you want to change. And again, we face the temptation as believers sometimes to either lose hope or, as I said, become bitter, or we just seek to avoid what causes pain. And we begin to withdraw. We begin to move away from those contexts where it's hard and difficult. Some of us just go through life faking happiness because we know it's expected of us by those around us. And so we put on a smile, but that smile doesn't represent the smile of a heart that is at peace with Christ. Another question we might be driven then to to wrestle with is the reality, will change in all these circumstances bring real joy? And it demands of us uh, another question. How do you have real joy in the midst of suffering? The Bible promises that it's available to us. Sometimes, though, our focus is on fixing the circumstances thinking that that's going to bring us the joy that our soul longs for. Is it possible to know a deep-seated joy when the world's broken all around you, when you're broken? I believe the answer is yes, and we'll consider that this morning. So then we might ask, well, what is the good that God wants to do in the midst of these trials? He promises me that all things work out for my good, and I know his good for me is to be more like Christ So therefore, what is it that he wants to do when I face the reality of fallenness? Another way to frame that question is, how does our recognition of our brokenness or our weakness aid us to know and trust and rely on God? Now we're moving closer to some of the good that God wants to accomplish when we begin to ask this kind of question. How does our brokenness aid us to know, trust, and rely on God? When you're so painfully disappointed by people in your life who don't reciprocate or love you in the way that your heart longs to be loved, how does that brokenness put you in a position to know and trust and rest in God? Maybe another question we would ask at that point is, how do we experience then real rest in him? If the rest is not found in just resolution to troubling circumstances. This is the question that our soul longs to have answered. Is it truly possible? Is it? 
another way I frame this question as I thought about it is, how do these present trials or difficult opportunities, or I'm sorry, how do these trials present opportunities to know and live like Christ? Is there something available to us in that circumstance that actually is for our good and can enable us to understand Christ more, to relate to Christ more, to understand his sympathizing and empathizing with us more? That this troubling circumstance, if it wasn't in my life, would not give me the opportunity to taste and understand? Then what is needed to live like Christ in those moments? To enter into his sufferings? And to know him more? Well, in an attempt to answer these questions this morning, and I, I won't do justice to them, I just want to give you enough to hang your heart on and, and continue to go back to the scriptures. And I'm going to give you some, some resources to read devotionally that have been a comfort to my own heart. And as I think about some of the texts of scripture that we know, and just by the way, my introduction is going to be a little longer, so just hang with me, okay? Uh, but I'm going to give you, uh, before we're done, four key principles uh, from a particular text in 1 John. But considering this larger picture of suffering and trials, what is it that God promises to do for us? Well, first of all, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, we're reminded to not grow weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. If you go back and look at the context of Galatians chapter 6, in verse 1, he just told us you need to pursue a brother who's in sin. And then he goes on to speak about conflict, or, or struggles in relationships and how to bear one another's burdens. This is the context for this verse. So how do we bear up in the context of sin and burdens and to not grow weary in well-doing? Or in our own study uh, with Pastor Harry in James, we recounted all the joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. And the contrast might be in our thinking between Galatians 6 and 9, where don't grow weary, which means you start to lose your footing and you just begin to yield to the circumstances where they overwhelm you. Here, James is saying we can experience being steadfast. He goes on to say, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Matter of fact, he says in verse 3, following, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, of, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And that's definitely forward thinking, future thinking. We see the same idea in Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, where he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This idea of being steadfast has a picture of being firmly planted and steady and, and yes, unmovable from the storms of life. You won't lose your footing. Or as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, we can rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
These are the promises of Scripture, that in the midst of the turbulent times of our life, the realities of facing the fall, we can experience not just being steadfast, but an endurance that then is characterized by hopefulness with the rest and confidence that even in those difficult times, God's love has been poured out upon us. Well, why are we called to suffer? God has a work to do in our lives, an important work, a necessary work. As a matter of fact, this is the radical shift we have to make in our own thinking, that suffering becomes a grace that aids us into further fellowship with our Lord. Boy, that's a total reframing of every trial that you face. Is this an occasion to know and identify with Christ that will accomplish something in me that will make me more like him? And I would argue that ultimately the chief motive in suffering for Christ is a richer, fuller love for Christ. Because as you suffer, as I suffer, we just get a glimpse of how the holy Son of God who lived in a fallen world experienced sin. Hostility, fallenness, persecution, ridicule, and even death. And so our sufferings, whether with a small s or capital S, provide for us an occasion to know Christ and to know his love for us that would cause him to go through all of that, to rescue and to redeem us. That's the big idea. Well, one resource I would encourage you to pick up is a book entitled Preparations for Sufferings, authored by Pastor John Flavel, great Puritan pastor, wonderful encourager, Preparations for Sufferings. If you just pick this little book up and put it with your Bible, and maybe took two, three, four weeks and read a portion along with your Bible reading devotionally, he will school you in a rich and wonderful way of the truths of who Christ is and his purpose for our own sufferings. And so I just want to share with you a few of the things that Flavel mentions by way of his purposes for us. And we won't have time to look at, but the text that this alludes to is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 9, and you understand the theme of Peter is suffering, even persecution, as the saints are scattered throughout the Roman Empire, facing even the risk of their own life to live for Christ. Fob makes this observation, number one, God allows Christians to suffer at the hands of their enemies for the purification and sanctification of our own affections. God allows Christians to suffer at the hands of their enemies for the purification or sanctification of our affections. It's the refining work that God wants to do to the real longings of our heart. Here's what he says. He says, God would rather have the hearts of the believer be very heavy under adversity than vain under prosperity. Wow. If you're honest enough with yourself, think about your life when things go well. Who's the first person we tend to neglect to pursue? and enjoy, and to trust in. God would rather have our hearts to be heavy under adversity than vain under prosperity. Second of all, he says, God allows Christians to suffer in order to show them God's power in helping them overcome. 
It's this recognition of our weakness that reveals God's strength and power on display, not only to us, but to those who know we're struggling. Flavel writes this way, a quote. He says, It is one of the greatest wonders in the world how the church subsists under such fierce and frequent assaults. And the manifestation of the glory of his power, God's power, in the marvelous ways of their escape and deliverance. When God provides that way out, the provision for you, it's a wonderful testimony of his work on our behalf. Absent our suffering and trial, there's no occasion for God to reveal himself this way. And if our longing is to see him glorified, then our sufferings provide just the opportunity for his glory to be put on display. Number three, Flavel says, God allows suffering in order to display his rule over those who are enemies of righteousness. God allows suffering in order to display his rule over those who are enemies of righteousness. Here's what he writes. And no less admirable is the wisdom of God in frustrating and defeating the most deep and desperate designs of hell against his poor people. So when you are being obedient to Christ in your daily life, combating sin, or we as a church take a stance for the truth against the assaults and the attacks, God's strengthening and protective hand upon us is an occasion where the enemy experiences defeat. And it signals what awaits him in an ultimate sense, total and final defeat. So God's victory in your life in the midst of a trial by caring for you, providing for you, strengthening you, even in the face of extreme persecution, is an occasion to remind the world that God wins. His victory is sure. Fourthly, we might see God allows suffering in order to overcome our fears of genuine faith and salvation. Here's what Flavel writes. He says, One sharp trial wherein God helps us to be faithful will do more to satisfy our fears and resolve our doubts than all the sermons that ever we heard in our lives could do. Do you know those quiet moments where through the testimony of Scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit, maybe the encouragement of a fellow believer, you prevailed over sin and that temptation? In the quietness of your heart, the confidence and the comfort that provides that, yes, you are His. You can have victory over sin. Maybe a couple more real quick from Flavel. Another principle, number five, God allows suffering of his children so that their love for one another is strengthened. God allows suffering of his children so that their love for one another is strengthened. Listen to what he writes. The church's sufferings are ordered and sanctified to endear them to each other. Times of common suffering are times of reconciliation. The people of God are never more endeared to one another than when scattered by persecution. Certainly there is something in our fellowship in the same sufferings that is endearing and engaging, but there is more in the discoveries that persecution makes sincerity of our hearts, which it may be was before entertained with jealousy. And there is yet more than all this in the reproofs of the rod, whereby they are humbled for their pride, wantonness and bitterness of their spirits to each other, and made to cry in the sense of these transgressions. What's he saying? It's a long statement. He's saying the common sufferings of the believers... Turn your heart towards a love and affection 
for those saints. God's purposes in suffering are many, and certainly to sanctify us and to change our attitudes towards one another. When you see a brother or sister suffering, it's difficult, isn't it? If the Spirit of God resides within you, to remain bitter and angry with them. There's a compassion that wells within your heart. And certainly if you find yourself alone under the attacks of Satan, you begin to appreciate and value the saints in a way where you want to draw close and be in fellowship with them. And so the suffering perfects us in that regard. Lastly, from Flavel, we might see God allows suffering of his children to teach them to seek him diligently in prayer. He writes, By these troubles and distresses, they are awakened to their duties and taught to pray more frequently, spiritually, and fervently. We've all experienced that, haven't we? The deeper our sufferings, the more intense our prayer life becomes because there's only one we can cling to and meet in those moments of despair. Well, turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to read a text, and in this text, I just want to highlight four principles for understanding God's good work in our suffering. I've already given you plenty to think about, but I want to focus on these four principles this morning. So let's read in 1 John chapter 3. Verses 11 through 16, the apostle writes, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now stop there. If you look at the context going all the way up, well, we know the context of the book of 1 John is discussing how we are being perfected as genuine saints to demonstrate the love of God. And uh, that's his exhortation. Verse 4 earlier says, Everyone who practiced sin also practiced lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And he goes on then to describe the difference between those who are true believers and those who are unbelievers, those who practice righteousness and those who practice unrighteousness. And so Paul's going to explain why there's a tension due to the result of the fall between those who are pursuing righteousness and those who are not pursuing righteousness. And we'll derive our principles from these verses So again, verse 11, for this is the message which you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Unbelievers don't do that. People who are not seeking righteousness are not set in the direction of loving one another. And so here comes the contrast. He says, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. There's the contrast. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. As we think about this, we can see that There are four principles that help us think about pursuing a righteous life in the face of unrighteousness. In the context where others are not pursuing Christ like we are, not seeking to honor him with their lives. So principle number one, perseverance in suffering is not always because we have done something wrong. And this is an important corrective to our thinking. If we're going to know joy, and have confidence and able to be steadfast in the midst of 
the face of sin and its effects. Perseverance and suffering is not always because we've done something wrong. Isn't that where your mind goes almost immediately? Am I being disciplined? Is this a consequence? What have I done wrong to deserve this? And it isn't easy, it's easy to fall into the trap of questioning ourselves when persecution or attacks or criticisms arise. Our own fearfulness and insecurity leads to questioning, is God unhappy with us? Have we failed Him in some way? And we ask the ultimate question of doubt, why? Why is this happening to me? Well, John makes clear that it can also be when we do what is righteous that we can expect opposition. Yes, if there's sin in your life, you may be being disciplined. And likely, if you're seeking the Lord, you know what that sin is and you know the response needs to be one of repentance. But what John's pointing to here is saying, there are times in your life as a believer, you're doing what's right and you will suffer. Now that corrects a lot of our faulty upbringing by way of this idea that if we just do all the right things, we will experience blessing or we'll get what we want if we follow the formula. That's not always true. And so this affects our expectations in in understanding that there are occasions when you pursue righteousness and the result is going to be hostility. Obedience to Christ is going to lead to suffering. So we see this in verses 11 and 12. Let me read it again. For this is the message which you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and what? Slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous? Notice the contrast that John's making here. It's important for us today to understand as well. Was Abel doing what was right or wrong? He was doing what was right. He was worshiping God according to the way that God instructed him to worship him. Was there any fault found in him? Was there just reason for Cain to kill him? No. But he did anyways. And so here, we see stated clearly that there will be conflict sometimes. And here, even in a family context, didn't Christ state clearly that brother will turn against brother because you pursue righteousness if their heart is not pursuing righteousness as well? Those who believe they can worship God on their own terms will become hostile when confronted with our faithful obedience and jealous of God's favor in our lives. And this will produce in them a guilt, even an anger, that even leads them to the extreme of seeking to kill us. Is it any surprise that the first generation of those born with imputed sin demonstrate this very principle? We're going all the way back to the beginning. The sons of Adam and Eve, first generation born with sin, indwelling sin. And what was manifest? One pursued righteousness, one did not. And what did it lead to? An extreme form of trial and suffering led to Abel's death. So it's interesting, John points all the way back and says this is the human condition. That even those who pursue righteousness are going to be met with suffering and persecution. Why should we be surprised when that's true of us today. So we have to reset our expectations 
when coming to faith in Christ and making a commitment to obey Him. Matter of fact, Christ in His own ministry with His disciples warned them, did He not? You might read in Matthew chapter 16, Christ's words, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Christ promised his disciples that suffering would be the way if you're going to be faithful to him. Principle number two, perseverance and suffering should be expected when obeying God. Should be expected John goes on to say in verse 13, do not be surprised, brethren, if what? The world hates you. And so changing our expectations aids the heart to not turn to bitterness or anger, but to say, Lord, this is your will. I knew this was coming. You promised me that this was coming. I should expect that obedience might entail suffering for you. What does John write in John 15? If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you, speaking of Christ. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. He continues on in that text to just remind the disciples, you may be met with suffering as a result of obeying me. And the contrast between those who are saved and living for God's glory and those who are not saved, pursuing righteousness or pursuing unrighteousness, or those, let me say it this way, who profess to be saved but do not demonstrate the fruit of being spirit-filled, having been transformed, walking in newness of life. There's a lot of people in the church. There may be a lot of people in your life. There may be people in your own home or your extended family who profess to know Christ, but the evidence of their life doesn't affirm that that's true about them. And so John says here, don't be surprised if the world hates you. But some of the world are going to be those who are in the world, yet they profess to not be in the world. And this is important for us to understand that where those who are caught up by sinfulness, we may be... We may expect from them pushback, hostility, anger, bitterness, when we actually expect them to live in accord to their profession. Do you know people like that? I do. Principle number three, perseverance in suffering is part of living a resurrected life. Perseverance in suffering is part of living a resurrected life. And at conversion, our death into Christ actually leads to a radical new life. This is the picture of baptism in Romans chapter 16. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 6. But look at what John continues to write in verses 14 through 15. He says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. And everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. It's interesting here, John continues to use the word brethren, speaking of those who are saved, genuinely saved. And now he's speaking about the family of God. Those who we should expect to love and support us, but the reality is those very people are the ones who can often hurt us the most. 
He's told us that the world will hate us, and we kind of expect that. Their rejection is something we're prepared for and consider it at the cost as we look out to reach them with the gospel. But those who profess Christ and claim to be part of the family of God, who we should expect to support, defend, and love us, sometimes are those who impact us the most in harmful or hurtful ways. You might refer to this as friendly fire. The assaults of these family members can be the most difficult to bear. And John tells us that though they profess Christ, when they reject the truth and seek to attack us for speaking the truth, they reveal the likely condition that eternal life is not abiding in them. Anybody who's ever been through a church discipline situation where there's no repentance, following loving confrontation with the aim to restore, has to wrestle with the ultimate question, is that individual truly saved? And that's why you see in Matthew chapter 18, as things escalate and there's no response from all those who seek them, you put them out of the church and you treat them like unbelievers. And how do you treat an unbeliever? You appeal to them with the gospel. But you don't let them continue to presume that they are saved. That's a dangerous standing that will be revealed before Christ at the judgment one day. Principle number four here, I know we're moving quickly, but principle number four, perseverance in suffering is a means of showing Christ-like love to those who treat you as enemies. Genuine conversion is evidenced by a Christ-like love for others. That's what John's arguing here. And you might consider what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, through chapter 5, verse 2. Listen to Paul. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as or in the same manner as how Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. When is Christ's love best put on display? It's in the face of mistreatment, neglect, hardship and ridicule, maybe even persecution. When we have to practice loving like Christ loves, right, is when we come to really understand what he did for us and then following that example. See those two words, just as Christ loved us, are words that guide us in the midst of suffering and trials when we're facing those. Whether they're unbelievers or even believers who are in the flesh and have a need to have a loving word of confrontation or exhortation extended, uh, ex- exhortation extended to them. It's in those moments that we begin to meditate on the amazing love of Christ towards us who were his enemies. And so this leads John to summarize the most distinctive characteristic of a follower of Christ, the call and ability to comprehend and demonstrate divine love, especially to those who persecute us. And if we didn't suffer persecution, if we didn't suffer ridicule or bitterness or attack from others, we would never come to understand the qualitative nature of Christ's love for us. 
And believe it or not, that moment of hardship and pain is a moment of grace because your eyes and your heart are opened up to the wonders of Christ. And then the empowerment he gives through his spirit to actually step out in faith towards someone who could injure you or has injured you. Not just for your good, but for their good. Not just to fix the situation, but for them to truly know Christ. To have their life turned towards Him. And if they can see Him in us in those moments, we give them a gift. of not just quoting a Bible verse, but we demonstrate how the power of God can transform another sinner's life to love in a way that there's no way we could possibly do apart from the transforming work of the gospel in our own lives. And so John writes in verse 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Christ made it very clear in saying, even a just man will die for the righteous, but Christ died for the unrighteous. Isn't that the whole point of the gospel? We didn't do anything to earn or merit the love of God. As a matter of fact, we were completely undeserving, unappreciative, ungrateful. And yet he moved towards us. He died for us. He made a means for us to be covered by him and his perfection so that the Father would see us covered by him. But it wasn't a a one time I fixed it and moved on. It was so that we might enjoy what? Ongoing intimacy and fellowship with Christ and with the Father. Sometimes we move towards people doing the right thing because we just want to fix the circumstance, but we don't really want to be their friends because it's too painful. Yet Christ never makes that conclusion. In fact, it's because it's so painful, the qualitative nature of his love is put on display when he continues to persevere. Well, these are just four principles from this one text that help us to think about God's good in our suffering. There's so much he wants to do. But to understand suffering and trials are actually a grace that aid us to grow to understand him. Well, I want to conclude by reading one statement and referring to you another resource. Richard Sibbs, in his most famous work, The Bruised Reed, which identifies with the text in Isaiah where we are seen as a bruised reed, not broken, or smoking flax, not put out, but just barely hanging in there as an ember, that Christ will not crush us. He will meet us there and strengthen us. Sibbs says this, Christ's work both in the church and in the hearts of Christians often goes backward so that it may go forward better. What's he saying? Just as seed rots in the ground, that's the backward part, that little seed, you put it in the ground, what happens? It decays. Okay? It goes backward. Just as seed rots in the ground in wintertime, but afterward comes up better. And just as the harder the winter is, the more flourishing the spring becomes. So we learn to stand by our falls. We get strength by discovering our weakness. We take deeper root by being shaken. And when we are foiled, let us believe we shall overcome. And when we have fallen, let us believe we shall rise 
again. The very hardships that we face, the breaking down of our lives, the breaking down of the lies in our thinking, the breaking down of our sinful and lesser ambitions, the breaking down of our demands and our judgments of other people becomes the fertile soil for where the love of Christ can blossom and to be put on display and for you to delight in your understanding of his love so that you might worship him. We have a lot to learn in sufferings and there's much good that God intends for us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the brief time we have this morning just to consider some of the principles that you have in store for us in living in the reality of a fallen world. Let us be true learners in the school of suffering. That our greater ambition in walking this life would be to know you, to love you, and to demonstrate your love not just to escape what's difficult or harsh or hurtful or harmful, but to believe that you will accomplish something that is so good for us that we can hardly imagine it, and yet give us little tastes of that, that we might remain encouraged and to press on, and let it be true of us that we set our eyes on Christ and to run this race in an enduring, steadfast way. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Lord bless you.